you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. And these nine verses in particular, the last three, will be our text again for, um, for this Sunday. On the evening of November 3rd, 2020, after election polls closed across America and we were told that it would still be days or weeks until a winner in the presidential race could be declared, it became clear that many of us are not very good at waiting. For weeks before this, we had been told over and over and over again that mail-in ballots had had changed the way um, that the, the results of the election would come about, but somehow we expected that things would be different than we were told. And so over the following hours and days, as news, newscasters restated the same information over and over and over again, it felt like the entire nation had become one giant ball of stress and impatience. Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part. Uh, waiting is hard. Waiting in line waiting for the end of the work day or the end of the work week, waiting for the end of the school day or the end of the school week, waiting for the joy of Christmas day can be a struggle. We want it to be here and we want it to be here now. And we want it so much that we have to buy calendars with a chocolate every day so that we can pacify ourselves for 25 days until Christmas arrives. Maybe you've seen those videos where a child is given a single marshmallow and, and she's told that she can have a second marshmallow, but only if she will wait 15 minutes and not eat the first one that's sitting right in front of her. And as she stares longingly at this treat that has been given, we, we too feel the struggle of waiting. Last week we spoke of Advent as a season, not of feasting and celebration, but of fasting and waiting. It's, it's a time to remember the darkness in us and in our world that Jesus has come to scatter and that he will one day banish forever. Advent is a chance to clear the clutter of our lives and prepare room in our hearts for the celebration of the Messiah's first coming as well as his promised return. The truth of Jesus' birth and the, the certainty of his return let us add an all-important clarity to the waiting of Advent and to the fasting of Advent. And it is that we wait and we fast with hope. But that doesn't mean that our waiting is always simple and and carefree. Waiting is hard. And often sorrow and anger are mixed with our hope as we wait. This is how we said it last week and what we're going to continue to think on today as our main idea. We must wait for the fullness of our salvation with an honesty about our sorrow and anger, but also with an unshakable hope in God. We must wait. We must wait for the fullness of our salvation with an honesty about our sorrow and our anger, but also with an unshakable hope in God. We see these elements of sorrow and anger in our passage today. Psalm 137. We spoke of sorrow from this passage last week, and today we're going to think primarily on anger as we think about how anger arises in us as we wait. You'll hopefully remember that this is a a psalm of the exile, of the, the period in Israel's history when they had been taken far from their land by the Babylonians. And beyond the the pain of being in a foreign land, they were also wrestling with the question of God's presence. 
In this place, far from the temple, far from the land, was God still with them. In the face of evil kings and enemies like Haman in the book of Esther, they wondered if God was still on their side. Would he rescue them? Would he save them as he had always done? As we look around us, we might be tempted to ask the same kinds of questions. What do we do with 2020? What do we do with all the difficulty and the uncertainty of it? Simply put, we we ask our questions and we seek answers in, in God's word, but we also wait. We must wait, recognizing our sorrow and our anger as well as our hope. We must wait for the fullness of our salvation with an honesty about our sorrow and anger, but also with an unshakable hope in God. As we think on that main idea, hear these words from Psalm 137 again this week. Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. There are few more shocking words in Scripture than those that are found here at the end of Psalm 137. The image alone of an infant being dashed against rocks is grisly. But then what do we also do with the fact that the psalmist declares that the person who does such a thing who does this gruesome act, is to be blessed by God. The shock of verses 7 through 9 is real, but I think we might understand the truth and the emotions, the, the anger behind these words if we consider a few things. Let me give you three things to consider to help us try to understand the, the weight of these words. First, we have not seen the brutality that the psalmist saw. We have not seen the brutality that the psalmist saw. I pray that's true. Uh, the description found in these verses is particu- in particular seems to recall the cruelty of God's enemies when the exile occurred. These words have the ring of an, of an eyewitness account. The, the psalmist is recalling what he heard and saw. Both Edom and Babylon are mentioned. The Edomites, the the neighbors of of Israel and their constant rivals are said to have come to Jerusalem on the day that it was invaded after it had been under siege. And they didn't come to offer help. They came to cheer on the Babylonians as they plundered the capital city. These spectators wanted to be sure that no stone was left upon another and they rejoiced at the city's destruction. Their mockery was brutal. And then we come to the cruelty of verse 9, which is understood in, in light of, of verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. 
the psalmist says that the one who will be blessed is the one who does to Babylon what they did to Jerusalem. So we see that this call for the dashing of infants against stones wasn't something just sort of pulled out of thin air. Rather, this was a memory. It was something that God's people had witnessed as their captors sought to destroy and demoralize and decimate those they were capturing. This happened to the people of Israel and to their children. And it's an image that's emblazoned in the mind's eye of this psalmist and of so many others. Think of the anger and the rage that you feel towards your enemies. Maybe not even real enemies, just someone who does something to you that you don't like. But think about true enemies. Think about those who are against you because you're a follower of Jesus. Think of the indignation that arises in your heart when God's people are maligned or when God's ways are mocked in this world. But then also think about people that have experienced much worse than most of us have. Think about those who who have experienced deep persecution, at least akin to what these exiles experienced. Think of those who have been mocked by their rivals and brutalized by their enemies. I think when we walk in the shoes of another, when we get into the mind and the heart of this psalmist and of others who have suffered deeply, we just might begin to understand the depth of their feeling. We might understand the reason behind their anger. I was reminded this week of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. It was written in large part as a response to many, especially white pastors in Birmingham, who said that the nonviolent movement for equal rights needed to wait a bit longer, that they needed to be patient. King poignantly responded with these words. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing cloud of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you are humiliated day in, and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Such words remind us why there is anger and frustration in the streets of our nation. And if we hear those words and we dismiss them as a a description of the world over 50 years ago, then we fail to realize that they're a description of the world only 50 years ago. And that the pain still exists deep and that the anger is real. And it's not just racism. It's racism and sexism and classism. It's abuse of all kinds, some of it recent, some of it ancient, but still fresh and hot for some people. Persecution and humiliation, violence, 
threats, bullying, mockery, so many other evils. These things fill our world and many are filled with righteous indignation in their souls. And they ask the question that's asked over and over again in Scripture. How long, O Lord? I think if we would pause and we would walk around in the shoes and the skin of another person, we might understand their anger a little bit more. And we might begin to see how much we need the fullness of God's kingdom and his righteousness here on earth. As we seek to understand verses 7 through 9, we recognize that we have not seen the brutality that the psalmist saw or that others who are angry have seen. And secondly, we may not think about justice in the same way the psalmist did. We may not think about justice in the same way the psalmist did. He's thinking in terms of retributive justice, an eye for an eye. God, due to them, what they have done to us. This is how the ancient world, and, for, and many people even today, still understand justice. And in that sense, the psalmist is not asking for extreme cruelty to his enemies, which is how we might read it at first. Rather, he is simply asking for justice as he understood it. Now, in saying uh, here that we may not think about justice in the same way as the psalmist, my hope is not to communicate that they were wrong and we are right, that our justice system is far superior to theirs. Uh, the reality is that no justice system of any nation at any time is perfect because it's run by flawed human beings. There is a, a common grace that God gives, which means that often the wrong fails and the right prevails. Yet even a cursory look at our own system reveals that justice does not always triumph in our courts, nor is she as blind as we might think she is. This leads us to a third thought as we seek to absorb the shock of verses 7 through 9. And here's where I think we have a lot to learn. Because the beginning of verse 7 makes it clear that we should learn from the way that the psalmist asks God to enact justice. We should learn from the way that the psalmist asks God to enact justice. I hope you feel the deep honesty that's in this psalm. I think it's an honesty that we would do well to seek in our own lives, an honesty about our sorrow and our anger. The psalmist feels deep anger, and he doesn't bottle it up, and he doesn't deny it. He, he processes, it, processes it before God and in his community of faith. I don't think we could say that he's venting here, not, not as we know it, Rather, he is, he is laying bare his heart before God who knows all, and he's doing it within the community of people who loves him and will speak truth to him. That's what we need to do. We don't vent just, for the, just to, to say why we're angry. Rather, we lay bare our hearts before God, and we do it within a community that loves us and will speak truth to us about our anger. This is the honesty about our anger that we have to have while we wait with hope. Otherwise, we'll explode. I pray that our church would be a community where we can share the ways that sin and brokenness in our world and in us feels like it's going to crush us. That we would hear the, the anger of our community, of our neighbors and our friends, and that we would be able to, to hear and sympathize and speak truth. And then may we give justice into God's hands. 
The psalmist is asking God to handle the Babylonians. God, you remember them. Remember what they did to us. Remember what they did to your people. And he trusts that God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. He doesn't take justice into his own hands, nor should we in a vengeful way, because we will likely fall short of justice or we will overindulge our anger. Romans 12, 19 encourages us like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And he will repay all evil with perfect justice. So thinking about verses 7 through 9 and trying to understand them, we have not seen the brutality that the psalmist saw. We may not think about justice in the same way that the psalmist did. And we should learn from the way that he asks God to enact justice. Hopefully these truths help us to understand these difficult verses a little bit better. But the other thing that helps us to, to view them or to understand them is to view them in light of the advent. Both the coming of Jesus marked on Christmas Day and the return of Jesus that we are still waiting for. The truth of the first advent and the hope of the second don't completely remove evil in the present. So we still have to seek that honesty about our sorrow and anger at all that happens in our world. Last week I mentioned Jesus confronting the death of his friend Lazarus in John 11. And as you read that chapter, you find there that he weeps at all of the pain that death has caused, but he's also moved in his spirit, which means that he is angry at the way things are in this broken world. And he expresses both his sorrow and his anger. And he does it knowing that in a matter of minutes or hours, he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So here again, there's a call to, to honesty about the deep emotions that we feel, including anger, even if we do know the end of the story. Even if we do know that all will be well one day, there's still a need to be honest about the struggles that we have with sorrow and with anger. But I don't think acknowledging our anger is where we need to stop. We've got to figure out what to do with our anger. We have to ask in the words of Mr. Rogers, what do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong. And nothing you do seems very right. What do we do when we feel that? Beyond our honesty about our anger, what do we do with it? Anger arises when we've been wronged and when we want something, someone to pay for the wrong that has been done to us. When we want justice for the Christian, we respond to anger like this. Let me give you two thoughts. Now, this isn't the full-orbed way to deal with anger, but a couple thoughts based on this psalm. First, we leave justice to God. We leave justice to God. We've talked about that a little bit already, but think about it just a little bit longer. We, as we leave justice to God. We trust that there is a day coming when all the evil of this world throughout all of history will be rightly judged and when all evil will be wiped from the face of God's good world. That is the day that we are waiting for in hope. So we're honest about our anger, but we have an unshakable hope that one day Justice will reign. Now, speaking to the conversation of our day, does that mean that we do nothing to seek justice in the present? No, of course not. We are, we are seeking the righteousness of God's kingdom here and now. And that includes justice for all people. But all of our working for justice holds in mind that it is only in the coming of the kingdom that complete justice for all people and for ourselves will be a reality. 
That doesn't keep us from seeking justice now, but it helps us to be realistic about it. And it can even fuel right understanding of how we seek justice in our world. But we leave justice to God. In our, in our anger at our enemies, we leave justice to God. We don't seek revenge or vengeance. Rather, secondly, we love our neighbors, including our enemies. What do you do with anger? You love your enemy. You don't get mad at them, you love them. Now, I'm not going to rehash the whole Sermon on the Mount that we just studied. But over and over again, we are shown that we are to willingly lay down our rights for the good of others, even those who hurt and harm us and persecute us. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to go the extra mile. We are to love our enemy. We do not seek their harm. We seek their good. We love our neighbors, including our enemies when we're angry. That's something only the Spirit can do in us. May he do it more and more. Now the nuances of these two statements, we leave justice to God, we love our neighbors, including our enemies, the, the nuances and the answers to all of our yeah, but questions are found and answered in the coming of Jesus, specifically in his sacrificial death on the cross where heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss our guilty world in love. I want to lead us here at the end as we think about our anger and as we think about waiting in hope. I want to lead us to the cross because the cross is the place of perfect love and perfect justice. When we leave justice to God, we're trusting in something. We're trusting that all sin will be paid for. Either by Jesus who has died for the sins of his children or by sinners when Jesus judges the earth on the last day all sin will be paid for. Justice will be done. We do not dismiss our anger and our desire for righteousness and justice. We simply wait. We wait hoping for the salvation of all and knowing that all will be made right in the end. And when we love our neighbor with the cross in view, we forgive as we have been forgiven and we seek their salvation. We pray that God would open their eyes to their sin move them to repentance and faith and justify them by his work of salvation. We speak the gospel to everyone, even our enemies, and we model the love of the gospel as we live and walk in the ways of God's kingdom. Take your anger to the cross. Take it to the cross and, and watch as we see justice perfectly satisfied and as we see love perfectly displayed. Rest in that. It's not to say waiting isn't hard. <laughs> waiting is hard. And the sorrow and the anger that we feel don't make waiting any easier. But hope does. And so we must wait. We have to wait for the fullness of our salvation. But we do it, and we do it with an honesty about our anger, an honesty about our sorrow, but also with unshakable hope in God. And as we wait, may God help us to leave justice in his hands, to love our neighbors and love our enemies, and to proclaim the wonder of his first advent and the coming reality of his second. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I will pray.
Father, we know all too well that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes it makes us deeply sad. Sometimes it makes us really mad. And we see, Lord, that there were times when you wept and there were times when you flipped tables. And so we know, Lord, that we can wrestle with these things, but we also have such great hope, a hope that was promised all throughout the Old Testament, a hope that was realized in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Lord, we, we taste so much of your kingdom even now, and yet we long still for that second coming, Lord, when all will be right again. So help us to be honest about our anger, but also, Lord, to, to release it to you, to know, Lord, that you are the judge of all the earth. You will do what is right. You will do what is just. Justice will be served. And Lord, as we long for justice, even as this psalmist did, as we lay our, our burdens before you and ask you to take care of it, Lord, we, we don't pray in the same way. We pray, Lord, that you would bring redemption. Lord, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would take those that are enemies and make them our brothers and sisters. That you would make them your children. That you would bring salvation, Lord. We won't do that apart from your spirit. We'll just be mad. <laughs> so Holy Spirit, come and change us. Make us more like Jesus. Fill us with faith. Ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.